So uh, turn uh, in your Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. And um, while you're turning there, I'm going to... uh, I understand this is being recorded, so i got to tell you, church, thank you for, uh, uh, for sending this out every week. And I want to say, uh, I give a shout out to our friend Scott Kirby. Uh, we baptized him a couple years ago uh, in Callahan, and he drives for Walmart. And, uh, but everywhere he goes, and we have some of you in here, part of our Tuesday night Bible study here in Mount Shasta at our house, and and Scott shows up on Tuesday nights, and the stories he's got about, uh, he's bold to witness for Christ. And he's got story after story how he just um, confronts people in a kind way. About, you know, might be a druggie. And he said, I shared the gospel with him. I don't think they heard or understood, but I did it. And, uh, and so uh, anyway, we, we appreciate Scott, his freshness. In, uh, in his love for God. And when he made that commitment and that life change, it really shows in his life. And so drive safely, Scott. Matthew uh, chapter 9. And uh, I got to tell you that um, in Callahan, I've been working in a sermon series through Matthew. And I don't have time to preach it all to you today. (laughs) But um, I want to talk today about the compassion of Jesus. And we're going to get to there, but um, uh, these are the last verses of chapter 9. And in chapter 10, he, he sends the disciples out. And so up to this point, and, and, and prior to chapter 10, I've seen what, what Jesus is doing is, is preparing the disciples, really. Getting them ready to, to be missionaries, to be ambassadors for Jesus as they go out. But what was the process to get there? In Matthew's Gospel, um, uh, starting in, in chapters 5 through 7, uh, you're all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, the two big things in the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer is part of that. But there's so many other teachings. And I, what I will summarize all those three chapters, five, six, and seven, it all talks about righteous living. Righteous living as taught by God, as taught by the Old Testament scriptures, not as the self righteous Pharisees. Time and again, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those are interchangeable terms. And, and so he, he gives that teaching, and he teaches so many things. And he takes the Old Testament scriptures, and he says, you have, it, you have heard it said of old, but I'm telling you, what it really is. I am God, and I'm speaking what was intended in the Old Testament law and all the prophets, and so he began to teach. Guess who that riled up? The religious leaders. Guess who 
felt comfortable, the average person on the street. And so he goes through his teaching, section after section after section in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, teaching what it means to be a righteous person, truly righteous in God through Christ, and exceeding that of the Pharisees. And so he does all of this teaching, and in chapters 8 and 9, he goes out and he's practicing what he was preaching. He begins to practice, and, and, and let me say, uh, uh, let me say as, as far as the Sermon on the Mount, the problem was the Pharisees, the religious leaders, tried to demonstrate their piety in a public manner. They wanted to look good. Look at me. Look at how pious I am. And they had created all of these rituals to make themselves look good. And, and they had to pray three times a day, and one of those was at noon. And the Pharisees were the type to say, Ah, it's noontime. I just happen to be standing on these steps in front of this important building. Everyone can watch me pray. That's self-righteousness. And, um, and Jesus was teaching to move beyond that. And then in chapters 7 and 8, or 8 and 9, he begins to heal. He gets out in among the people. And the Bible says he healed all kinds of diseases. He cast out demons. He took care of the lepers. And on and on the story goes of the healings of Jesus. And everyone who was healed, he said, because of your faith, I will heal you. And, and, and the stories are there. As we get to this last part of chapter 9, there, I'm gonna, we'll be looking at one more healing because it sets the stage for what I want to say in the rest of the passage. Let me, um, let me read this passage. I hope you brought your Bibles. In Callahan, we don't have all this fancy stuff, so people have to bring their Bibles, and, and I tell them, and they open up, you know. And, and because, you know, you can make... You can make marks in your Bible. You can underline or highlight. Uh, Brandon, I, I don't know if anybody's turned around and tried to highlight something you've had on the screen. But, uh, but uh, I, always, your Bible ought to be a companion. Uh, wherever you are, you ought to have access to the Bible so that if somebody asks a question, you can, you can find an answer for them. You can be ready for that. Chapter 9 beginning in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons." And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease 
and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, just open our hearts and our minds today to receive the teaching of the Holy Spirit in this passage of Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage uh, here today, we see, um, we see one more healing. As I mentioned, chapters 8 and 9, just a variety of different kinds of healings. And, and here we see one more healing uh, that's part of this passage uh, today. And, and so what, what this healing does, and it's somewhat representative of everything else, but what happens in this moment is a, um, the great division that there is among the religious leaders opposing Jesus and the religious leaders. The division, the divide, gets bigger and bigger the longer Jesus is involved in his ministry. And I think it started out early on in the teachings of Jesus and some of the early healings, but, and, and they, they kind of, the, the Pharisees, uh, and I use, I'm going to use Pharisees representing all of those religious leaders of the day, uh, but they, they, they didn't take it too seriously. But guess what? The people began to come out to Jesus. They began to seek him out. They began to bring their friends. They were serious about getting in touch with Jesus. And the one paralytic, they couldn't even get to Jesus because of the crowd. And, and they got on the roof and opened up the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. And, and, and this is where one of the big divides came. Because Jesus said, because of your faith, and he's talking about those guys, but perhaps also the paralytic. Because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, oh, only God can forgive sin. Who does this guy think he is? I can tell you from all of the teaching and the ministry of healing that Jesus was doing, he was showing who he was. He's showing that he was the Son of God. He's showing that he was deity living in the world. And they did not want to buy into that. And yet the people began to see that. And so this, at this point, the division was great. And then Jesus summarizes his ministry as he ends up talking about the harvest. I'm going to divide this today. I didn't see a bulletin. Do you guys have a program? You have, must have a program. Uh, there's a place, I know you have a place for notes. And uh, Chris, did you squeeze in that other outline? Did Chris run off? Okay. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the outline. I'm going to divide this into four segments this morning. The first one is the two reactions to the, to the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. That's in verses 32 to 34. And then I'm going to talk about the threefold work of Jesus. 
as he describes it in verse 35. And then we'll share about the divine compassion in verse 36. And then in verses 37 to 38, the waiting harvest. So that'll be the outline this morning. So let's look first of all at the two reactions of this healing that Jesus brought about. And I'm going to say there are not many passages uh, that show better than this one the impossibility of an attitude of neutrality towards Jesus. The line is drawn and, and you're either for Jesus or against Jesus. Look at verse 32, and this sets the stage. As they were going away, and he's speaking about uh, the people in the previous verses, as they were leaving, right away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. That's the first reaction. The attitude of the crowd was amazement and wonder. And they'd already seen some of this, or they had heard about it in the ministry of Jesus as he traveled around. And, and, and yet, once again, and it should always be that way, when God brings about blessing in our lives, when things are, when prayers are answered and things in our life are changed, because we've asked God about it, there ought to be great wonder and excitement and pleasure at what God is doing in our lives. Amen. He's still working today. Nothing has changed over the years. And so the crowds, once again, were amazed, and, and, and they wondered at what was taking place. These were a simple people with a great sense of need. And I can tell you, the greater one feels their need is, and that need is satisfied, that need is met, the greater the thanksgiving is given toward God. It's kind of like this. It, depending on where you are in your life, if you, have, if you don't think you have many needs, guess what? You're not very grateful for what God does. But the greater your need, and that need is met, the greater the thankfulness that is given back in response to God. It ought to be that. Well, it is that way. Some people don't experience that because they don't really see how great their need is. They don't understand that in salvation, sinners have been given grace and mercy and new life in Jesus Christ. And, and the Pharisees, they didn't wonder about those things because they were already self-satisfied, self-righteous people. So there was no need to give thanks to God. They made lip service once in a while, but they didn't really give that. These were simple people who had a great sense of need. You know why missionaries in other parts of the world uh, come back with great stories? It's because the people have great needs in those nations, those countries in which they serve. And when God is presented, when Jesus is presented and lives are changed, those people say, wow, we didn't know about this God. We didn't know we could feel this way. And the gratefulness and the thankfulness rises to a great crescendo 
in appreciation for what God has done. But you go to the nations where everyone is satisfied with their living and they can go to church in their big cathedrals and they never see a real need in their life. They're not very thankful. They go to demonstrate their clothing in some churches. They go to demonstrate or have business meetings and, and create relationships in business because many times church in certain churches, that's the thing you get to do. We're all together here. Let's, let's talk some business building those relationships in that way. They don't have anything to be thankful for to God because they don't see a need in their life. They're going through the motions in those times in their life. And when we come and present Jesus to people, the need will be supplied in him. Jesus will always appear wonderful to the person with a great sense of need. And then in verse 34, we see the second reaction to this healing of this mute man. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And uh, that was their attitude. And they, they, their attitude was one of great hatred. Now, I'm going to explain a couple things here in a moment. They did not deny what he had done. No one could deny that. You cannot deny if you're there and this man cannot talk, cannot speak for years and it says he's demon-possessed. Jesus casts out the demon and he begins to speak. You cannot deny that that happened. It's right there. You can't, <laughs> you can't spin it. The politicians will try, but they can't do it. And, and the Pharisees tried, but they failed. But they didn't deny that this had happened. But they attributed the power of Jesus to his complicity with the prince of devils. And what the eye sees always depends upon what the heart feels. And when there's hatred in the heart, you don't see what God is doing in their lives. This verdict of the Pharisees was due to certain attitudes within their minds. And we have the same attitudes today in our world. First of all, they were too set in their ways to make a change. Now you think about that. They are comfortable in their positions as religious leaders. They think, I'm going to use that term, they think they're being looked up to by the people, and they're not, because they weren't doing anything for the people. But they were set in their ways. And for them, as they could, they could bring up their own translation of Scripture, and if you change a tradition, it was a deadly sin. So don't even talk about changing what we've done all of these years. And I can tell you that today, and, and we know that the Pharisees, they had developed out of the law of the Old Testament, they had developed all kinds of traditions to follow. And they added to what the Scriptures were. And they put this pressure, and they put this burden upon the people. you got to do it this way, and this way, and these are our traditions. And you break tradition, it's a great sin. And when Jesus came with a new interpretation 
a new understanding of what righteousness really meant when he came into their lives and, and he told them what real religion was all about, the Pharisees hated him as they had hated the prophets long ago. So they were too set in their ways to change. Secondly, they were too proud in their self-satisfaction to submit to God. And you know why that is? And I think this is a big one today. This is why people have a hard time humbling themselves and saying I was wrong. They, they, because here's the issue. If Jesus was right in what he was saying, then they were wrong. And they couldn't submit to that. They didn't want to believe that they were wrong. Therefore, they would not buy into what Jesus was saying. But repentance, repentance, and that's submitting, repentance is the gate whereby all people must enter into the kingdom. Jesus is the door, but repentance moves us through Jesus into eternal life. And the third thing, they were too prejudiced to see what was really going on. Prejudiced in a variety of ways. They were the person who is so set in their ways that they will not change, even when the truth is before them. That person who is so proud in their self-righteousness that they are unable to submit to the proper authority, to the authority of God in their lives. That person who is so blinded by their own prejudices about religion and people that he cannot see will always resent and hate and seek to eliminate Jesus. And that's what we have going on in our world today, in our American society today. That's what is going on. People do not want to change. And you can go back. I can remember that. Uh, I can remember when they took uh, prayer and Bible reading out of the schools. I can remember when other things slowly began to change. And then guess what? In today's world, they've not only taken things out, they are bringing so much ungodly stuff into our educational system at every level. God is totally pushed out of the picture. And that's their goal. That's their desire. That we forget about God. And much of that comes from the early or, or the um, 1800s German um, Eastern or European theologians who brought on the concept of the Enlightenment time. We're in the Enlightenment period. And they began to move away from the true teaching of Scripture to make it fit what they wanted. And it's going on even in our world today. And people are rejecting God and I just, um, I think in the 80s, maybe early 90s, you probably heard the phrase, when things are going on, there's a great silent majority in our country. Those people saying that were talking about there are Christians 
are going to vote a certain way, are going to believe a certain way, they're just quiet about it. And so the silent majority, and that was true for a period of time. And when it came time to cast a ballot, uh, they kind of came through. But that silent majority, because they were silent, is now a minority. We cannot afford to be silent. We, and we don't have to get on the airwaves and condemn all kinds of people. I'm just talking about what does the Bible teach? And in conversations, everyday conversations, wherever we are, in a loving manner, you say, this is what God says. I care about you. I want to tell you what Jesus did. And if they only want to argue, you don't argue back. You've, you, you've planted the seed. You trust God to bring about the change in people's lives. Let's move to the threefold work of Jesus in verse 35. Here in one sentence we see all of the activity that was the essence of the life of Jesus in verse 35. Need to get a big print Bible. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That was the work of Jesus in his ministry on this earth. Number one, Jesus was a teacher, and it says he taught in the synagogues. He taught in a lot of other places, but he taught in the synagogues, and what did he teach? Old Testament scriptures. He taught the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogues. And, um, and he, he taught it as it should be taught. You can go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Jesus. And he said, this is what God intended by the law, by the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the religious leaders had perverted. So he, he was busy teaching in the synagogues and elsewhere. Secondly, it says he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. The Greek word for proclaim means to be a herald. And um, a herald is one who brings a message from the king. The herald is the one who brings a message from the top guy. And so um, Jesus is the one who is bringing the message from God himself to the people of the world. Jesus was a herald. He was a proclaimer of the kingdom of God. And the duty of the herald is to proclaim certainties. In other words, this is what the king says. This is what the guy in charge says. Now, I know this is what I know because I used to watch old movies. And the herald would come into the city, the community square, and he'd unroll the scroll. Hear ye, hear ye. And he'd read the proclamation from the king. And it was very clear what the king intended. It was very clear what the king wanted. What was Jesus doing? He came into their midst. 
And he said, truly, truly, I say unto you. And he spoke clearly the message of God to the people he was ministering to in every town, in every village. He was the herald proclaiming not whatever he wanted to, but proclaiming the message of God the heavenly follower. And we need to do that. Preaching must always be the proclamation of certainties. When we finish today, I hope, I hope you're not confused about what the Bible is teaching in the area we're talking about today. I want to always speak clearly and give clear understanding of the meaning of the gospel and what God teaches. And we as followers of Jesus, we must be certain in our own minds. So have you ever been asked a question by someone, what do you think the Bible means when it says, I hope you've said, here's what it means. Or if you have to say, you know, I'm not sure. I'm uncertain about that. That would be enough to make me go home and get into it and become certain about that point of Scripture if someone asks that question. You don't know, we don't know it all now. And it's okay to say, hey, I'm not quite sure. Let me get back with you. You go away. You ask someone. You get in and study it. Whatever it takes to become certain on what that Scripture teaches. Because we do not want to give an uncertain sound to the people in the world. It only brings about confusion. There was a man, uh, Jeffrey Haywood. He was a headmaster of an English school in the early 1900s. And um, here was a statement he made, early 1900s. Here's a statement he made. The great tragedy and problem of this age is that we are standing at the crossroads and the signposts have fallen down. If he said that in the early 1900s, what are we saying today? What is the message today? We live in an age of uncertainty. People are not sure of anything. And they need more than anything else a clear proclamation of what the Scripture teaches. And sadly to say, many, many churches are not proclaiming clearly the gospel message. They're involved in social activities. They're involved in changing the Scriptures so they can be all-embracing to everyone. Listen, God and Jesus embraced everyone. But the condition was on, you live life this way. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, part of it is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is the new covenant? That Jesus died for our sins. And it's through Him that we have eternal life. It's through His blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And so we need to be in that place and we need to be clear about that. God is all embracing to those who will submit themselves to those who will repent of sin as the Bible describes it. And I'll just give you one word for sin. Rebellion against God. Now we like to list all of these things. 
that people do. And how many have said to you, well, you know what your sin is? Well, the sin that God concerns God is our disobedience to Him, our rejection of Him. That's, that's the sin that keeps people away from God, that keeps people from eternal life. And if you're in Bible study this morning, you heard the end result as Hoyt taught about hell as a place for the unrepentant sinners. And many churches today try to change that. Oh, you don't need to change your lifestyle. You just live any way you want to live. God loves everybody. I'll tell you what, that love of God sent his son Jesus to the cross. That's the love that he had. But I can tell you this as well. Those who are not accepting of that, those who reject that, those who are so self-righteous they cannot submit to God will not enter into the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear to me. The signposts have not only fallen down, but new signposts are being put up everywhere. And you know what they're saying? You know, what do we believe? We believe this to be good and the world to just saying that's bad. And we say this is sinful. This is bad. This is good, the world is saying today. The signposts have changed and people are confused because there's still voices saying, turn to God, repent of your sin. And there are voices saying, don't worry about God. Don't even believe that stuff anymore. And we are living like those in the Old Testament when it said that everyone was doing what seemed right in their own eyes. That's why there's so much confusion in the world. We're supposed to be a nation of the rule of law and they're just changing everything. No one knows what the rule is anymore. My wife and granddaughter have been playing this Scrabble thing, I think, over the phone. And they'll be sitting in chairs next to each other. You cheated. No, I didn't cheat. You cheated. Well, I guess they're making up the rules as they go along. <laughs> and that's the world we live in today. And no one knows what is clear. We live in an age of uncertainty. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus not only taught, he not only proclaimed the kingdom, but he was the healer. He was the healer. His words were translated into deeds. What he said, he practiced in his everyday life. To the priest, religion consisted of sacrifice, ritual. Just do this and do this and do this, and you're going to be okay. That's my job as a priest, to give you that guidance. To the scribe, Religion consisted of the law. Got to be obedient to the law. To Jesus, religion consisted of loving the helpless. And that's what he proclaimed. Quickly, in verse 36, the divine compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
The Greek word for compassion means that which moves a person to the deepest depths of their being. Compassion, pity, caring, wanting to do something, wanting to make a change. And once again, we see the sharp contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus had great compassion for the people. He looked out over the crowd. He had great compassion for the people. The Pharisees held the masses in contempt. And then Matthew goes on to use two picturesque expressions to bring out the plight of those who were the object of the compassion of Jesus. In verse 36 also he said they were harassed and they were helpless. Harassed by the religious leaders. Helpless because there was no one to offer support to meet their needs. The imagery is that of a, of, of a sheep without a shepherd. Sheep would be wounded either by hostile animals or maybe the thorn bushes and they were cast down and they were helpless to do anything to, for themselves. And the people, sheep without a shepherd, points to all of those who are in great danger, who have great needs, and without the resources, they cannot escape from that need. They are helpless. And Jesus said, I've come to help the helpless. I've come to minister. I've come to meet your great needs. And the common people were desperately longing for God in their life. I believe all those years, and, 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 and basically we're talking about the Jewish people at this point, but all these years the average Jewish person wanted to love God, wanted to be obedient, and yet the, the priests, the Pharisees, were pushing them down, burdening them, with all kinds of things in their life. The scribes and the Pharisees, the priests and the Sadducees, these were the pillars of Orthodox religion, and they had nothing to offer to the people. They should have been out there shepherding, leading, guiding, giving clear instruction, but they were not doing, doing that. And we must always remember that Christianity, God's work, Christianity exists not to discourage, but to encourage people. It exists not to weigh people down with burdens, but to lift them up with wings. I can tell you this, if you hang out with the religious turkeys, you'll never soar with the eagles of God. And finally, verses 37, 38, the waiting harvest. You need to listen faster. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The metaphor of harvest differs in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Normally, many times in the Old Testament, the concept of harvest meant that God was coming to judge the wicked. In the New Testament, 
Jesus brings a spiritual harvest concept. God's people out there needing something, and the harvest is ready. They desire to know God. They want to be in God's kingdom. And that's what Jesus was about. He saw the great need. The people were ready. They just needed to hear the message. They just needed to be encouraged to move toward Jesus. And, um, and he saw that need. And he has been doing all of this by himself. The disciples were tagging along. They were learning. They were in training. But I kind of see Jesus seeing the great crowds and thinking about the Heavenly Father. Thinking, Father, I, I'm only one person here. I've been all of the villages. I've been doing this and I've been doing this. And, and the need is so great out there. He's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing in every city, in every village. But he needed help. It is no accident that we find this text immediately before chapter 10 when he calls the 12 and gives them their commission to participate in the harvest. So what does he say in verse 38? Therefore, therefore is always a transition based on the fact that the crowds are out there, the multitudes are out there, and they are like, they have no shepherd, they need help. Therefore, pray earnestly, he says. Therefore means the state of affairs that we just talked about demands some kind of action. And because there are few workers for the great harvest, it is incumbent on the disciples to do something. And the particular action Jesus singles out is prayer. It is one of the functions of the workers in God's field that they pray for more workers to be sent to the field. You know what I pray about? God, bring us some new chaplains. God, some of us are getting old. <laughs> and there's much to be done. And, and this is a huge county. It's God's county. It's God's mission field. My job is to pray that God will send a few more people to help out in the ministry. And Jesus uh, affirms the fact that believers' prayers, we participate in the fulfillment of God's plans. But I found one of the things when I'm praying, I'm also, God's saying, there's more you can do. Prayer asks God to send more people. Prayer says, God, what else can I do? How else can I do it? And then he said in verse 38, where do we direct our prayers? To the Lord of the harvest. Let me make something clear here. God is the Lord of the harvest. All of the people who are waiting for someone to share the good news they were God's harvest. They were God's field. It all belongs to God. It's not our harvest. I mentioned Scott earlier. A friend of his brought him to church. A friend of his, his encouraged him. I chatted with him. He made a profession of faith and we baptized him. People were involved in bringing him. But he was God's harvest, not mine. I was a missionary, or I was the pastor, or I was the individual who talked to him and 
helped him to come to that place of understanding the teaching of the Bible. And he made that commitment to God because it's God's harvest. And we pray to God. The harvest already belongs to him. He's done all these things. He's planted. He's created us. We are his people. And he wants us to know Jesus. And he wants us to change. It is already his harvest, but it must be gathered in. And that's where we come in. Let me wrap up. Three quick thoughts. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, there was no neutrality. And as time went on, the division got greater. People were either with him or against him. And the same is true today. There is no neutrality when it comes to God and Jesus Christ. You cannot be on the fence. You cannot straddle the fence and wonder which way you're going to fall off. You're on one side or you're on the other side. That's pretty clear in the Scripture and the teaching. I want it to be clear to you that you either know Jesus and you've repented of your sin and you've come to that place where you acknowledge Him as Savior, then you're on His side, or you've rejected that and you're on the other side. You are either with Him or against Him. Secondly, what is your attitude and what is my attitude toward people? When we see people who are struggling, do we have compassion or do we have contempt? Oh man, I need to, I need to help that person. I need to share. Ah, they deserve what they're getting. You know how they're living. Nothing's going to change that. Compassion or contempt. And then lastly, the message really is simple. The kingdom of God needs men and women who will help to bring in the harvest. I know that this church is a church that believes in missions and ministries, and you're doing all kinds of things to help bring in the harvest. Preachers, teachers, missionaries, ordinary believers, all of us are called to participate in the harvest in one way or another. So what I'm really saying is, don't be part of the silent majority or minority. Engage yourself with other people. Be involved in ministry somehow. And I've always felt from the early years of my life that when taking a position of responsibility in a church, doing whatever it might be, opens the door for other things. I never thought I'd be a pastor. My wife never thought I'd be a pastor. She was praying for some guy to make lots of money. I have a plan for that. You guys can help. I, sometime back, I was watching some late night up at my mom's house. I was watching some late night TV, and you know, you get to a certain point, and there's nothing on but these TV preachers. The ones that say, plant a seed, that means send me money, and, uh, and God will bless you richly. And this one guy was saying, you want Jesus to come? So I can ask that question. You guys ready for Jesus to come? And he said, and I tried this on my church, he said, send me more money and Jesus will come sooner. <laughs> I got the same reaction from my church. 
Now, if you want Jesus to come sooner, my address is 526. <laughs> oh, man, there's too much of that in the world. We have the message of Jesus Christ. Let's not be silent, but let's not be belligerent. Let's not be bullying and sharing Jesus Christ with the love of God as he leads you to talk to anyone in your family or neighbors or friends. Just take opportunity that don't be the silent person. There's no neutrality. Father, give us understanding. Help us to examine our own hearts, our own lives. What is our attitudes about people? Are we silent or do we speak for God? Are we neutral or trying to be neutral because ah, we fit in better with the world? No, we want to fit in with you, God. So make us, bring us to that place of making decisions today that will keep us on your side, that will keep us in the ministry of gathering people in your harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.